You're listening to Small But Mighty, the podcast of the Small Nonprofits Alliance, the online hub for Australia's small charities. Welcome everyone to this episode of Nonprofit Mythbusters, where we bust commonly held misconceptions in the small nonprofit sector. I'm here with Small Nonprofits Alliance founder Bianca Crocker, and I'm Kirsty Wallet, co-founder of the Alliance. Before we get started today, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. So, Bianca, hi. Hi, Kirsty. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So, today we're going to tackle a few really juicy nonprofit myths, particularly for small organisations. So, do you want to get us started? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, really looking forward to this episode. Um, so, my first one uh, that I'm talking about today is the myth that small nonprofits don't have paid staff. Um, oh, I love this one. Yeah, so um, it's a really commonly held misconception um, in the charity sector, especially amongst those in the small space. Um, Firstly, what I'd like to say is that the charity sector itself employs more than one in 10 of all Aussie workers, which is actually about the same as the retail sector. So it's huge. Um, And it isn't just the big charities that have paid staff. The small ones do too. So of Australian charities, um, they have about 1.3 million paid staff and of that, about 6.1% of all of those paid staff work in charities that have less than a million dollars. So even though it's a small portion of those paid staff, there is still a lot of them. So it's about 83,000 people work paid in paid roles in small charities. Um, What's also really important, I think, to talk about when we're having this conversation around um, paid staff is that in addition to paid staff, the sector also has a really big unpaid workforce. The Australian charity sector has over 3.5 million volunteers. And what's Mm. interesting, even though we only have about 6% of our all paid staff in small charities, we have nearly 40% of all the volunteers of Australia are, are associated with small charities. So it's really, it's really, really big. Um, I think though, when we are thinking about paid staff, it's really important to remember that small organisations do need to start to consider how they can invest in their organisation and invest in paying some employees um, to help them build their capacity, grow their programs and services. And where that role is in a fundraising role, um, that obviously helps grow your revenue too. So I think mm. sometimes we need to think a little bit about how we can invest in the in the capacity of the organisation, um, which sometimes people feel that it goes against the grain of, um, you know, making sure all the money goes out into the community. But in in um, in a different way, re- uh, reinvesting in your organisation's capacity is a way that we can um, build our organisations to be able to be stronger and do more work in the community. And that doesn't necessarily mean building our organisations into being large charities. You can still remain a small organisation but have a few paid staff that really just help um, 
get some of those really key things done for your organisation. You make a really good point there. It's just not sustainable or smart to consider that any organisation, charity or not, would be able to survive purely on volunteers. I mean, if you even think about the human element of it, burnout is very common in the sector. So where do you think this idea comes from that? um, Do you think it comes from within the sector or is it an old approach in terms of what donors might think about not wanting any of their money spent on paying staff? Yeah, because I, I still see a lot of people in the sector sort of wearing it as a badge of honour that they don't pay any any of their staff, particularly yeah. in small organisations. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a combination of both. I think it's probably driven driven more by the wider perception. Um, but then you're right; there are some organisations out there that wear it as a badge of honour that they don't have any paid staff. And yes, in some organisations that can be really great and it does say a lot that you've got some really committed volunteers helping run the organisation. Mm. But there is a risk in having um, purely a volunteer-led and run organisation mm. without having any paid staff because the, the accountability is different, um, you know, the expectations and what you, you know, you can expect to receive can be really different as well. And, and what's interesting, for smaller organisations, again, those under a million dollars revenue, the paid employees in them, which in includes full-time, part-time and casual, they can um, be anywhere between 1.5 per like people, so one and a half paid staff, up to six and a half paid staff. So, you know, and that one and a half paid staff could actually be three or four part-time people doing different roles, you know. Mm, so it's sure. really um, important just to think about how you can start to invest in your organisation because it does build... Um, it builds a real amount of robustness, if that's such a thing, into your organisation. So I think it's something people need to consider. So Kirsty, what's your first myth that you want to bust today? So the first myth that I want to bust for small nonprofits and charities is this perception that when you're really small or you're starting out, you can get away with not having a website. I think this is a really common one that you and I have come across quite a bit. Look, most charities do have a website. You know, I don't want to say this without acknowledging that it is sometimes a really huge undertaking and it feels really overwhelming, particularly particularly if you're not, you know, comfortable with the website or tech side of things um, and you're doing everything yourself in your small organisation. It can be really overwhelming to think about getting a website going, but it's a really critical part of setting up and trying to develop the work that you do. Um, I think a perfect example of why you can't just rely on a Facebook page is what is what a lot of small organisations have relied on or a Facebook group or even an Instagram page. Instagram is becoming, you know, a much more friendly place for a small non-profit to be. I think the news ban and the issues around that that we had in Australia early this year and the changes that have been made to privacy on um, Apple iPhones and how that's affected Facebook advertising have really illustrated that these platforms can really change on a dime and that to protect your organisation and your ability to be out there in the digital space, which is more important than ever with COVID, you really need a website. And it doesn't need to be anything super complicated. There are some really user-friendly and simple ways to set up even just a one-page website. You know, if you don't feel you've got a lot of content or this, you don't want to take donations through a website yet, but um, you want to have a presence, there are some really great 
ways you can do that. You can use WordPress, you can use Wix, where all of your hosting and your fees are all contained in that platform. And that's a really great way to start off. I mean, the the website and the online space is changing rapidly all the time. So really even bigger organisations that want to set up a website for a five-year period really can't do that now anyway. Mm. Things are changing a lot and you need to be able to be really nimble, I think, with your building a website and whether you might expand it in a year, a two years, three years with your growth. We don't know what's coming in terms of technology and websites, so you've kind of just got to deal with the now. And I think that's what small organisations are really good at doing, being really flexible and nimble, and I think that really needs to be applied to websites. I think most people are scared of the technology uh, and maybe it's not something they've done before. So there are lots of ways around it. I think you can try to, um, you know, leverage someone who has a little bit more knowledge than you to help you out to volunteer you can there are so many grants for websites for nonprofits as well even if it's not a specific website grant you could apply for mm. a grant to um to fund something like that so that you can outsource it mm. um to an agency or someone who can help you it, it can be a really daunting process and i totally acknowledge that but it's so important more important than ever i think to have that web presence Yeah, I agree. I think it's one thing um, that I've noticed a lot more of in recent times is um, funding applications from different philanthropic grant bodies. They're asking questions around, you know, they want to know what your website is. So um, donors and investors, they all generally always go to your website, even if it is just, like you said, a static one page, doesn't have to be a complicated, fancy website. But even if it's just um, a web presence that sort of talks to who you are and what you do is is really key. I think that's really important, definitely. It really is, you're right. It adds to credibility, but it's also really practical as well. You want people to be able to find you. Um, again, if you're applying for funding, that's really important. So I think it's really something if you're thinking of starting a nonprofit or you've just started or you've been up and running for a while and you think your size or the work that you do means that you don't need a website. And a lot of people out in the community where they do a lot of their work face-to-face would think they don't need it. But I suppose you want to have it there before the need really presents itself as well. You know, if you're at a point where you can leverage an opportunity or grow and you need a website and you don't have it and it's this mad panic, that's really not a situation you want to be in. So wherever possible, um, investigate um, how you can do that and make that a priority. Yeah, and I I agree. Uh, The other thing is even though you don't want to be too overwhelmed with taking online donations, it is something that you know, should be considered in this platform as well because a lot of Definitely. people are looking to make online donations and it doesn't need to be, you know, five or eight years ago it was very complex. You used to have to have special payment gateways and all of that sort of stuff. It was it was a headache. Um, but there's so many different ways you can do it now. And our our partner, um, mycause.com.au, they actually have some really great features that they can help you put a payment gateway straight onto your um, website that takes the donation straight through um, and it doesn't That's have right. the complexities of, of what um, online payment gateways used to have. That's right. And a lot of the services they offer are free too. And there are a lot of platforms out there making it really cost effective and easy for you to take online donations. So 100%. I mean, if COVID has taught us anything, it's the importance of digital presence. And, you know, so 
websites are never going to become obsolete. I know social media um, is seen as a really important tool, particularly for small charities because it's really accessible, um, and I 100% agree with that, but you will always need a website. So, Bianca, what's your second myth? My second myth is that charities shouldn't make a profit. Oh. So <laughs> this is contentious. <laughs> I hear some frustrations in that side there, Kirsty. <laughs> yes, totally. So we really need to not be fooled by the word non-profit when we talk about our sector. Um, I know there is a small shift that people start using this, the words for purpose because there's some hesitation now around using the word non-profit because that can be very misleading because people think that it means you shouldn't make a profit. But it does not mean that at all. It does not mean that we cannot make a profit. It actually means that any profits are not for the benefit of any one person or group of people, like you might have in a for-profit business where there's an owner or there's shareholders. So any business or project or program really cannot operate just on goodwill. You need to have money. Um, to be able to um, build, you know, what you want to do. You need to have money in reserves and that's considered good practice. And it means that you're thinking about the future. It means that you've got money aside for a rainy day and it means that your organisation is financially viable. The opposite of not making a profit is making a loss. And if you're mm. making a loss, you're going backwards year on year and that's not going to be good for anyone uh, you know, for the communities you serve, for the people that you work with, it's it's not going to, you know, you can't be sustainable if you're going backwards in your finances every year. 100%, yeah. Um, and even the ACNC, the Australian Charities Not-for-Profit not Commission, um, have the same view. They actually say in their details around this that a charity can make a surplus providing it is used to further its charitable purposes. So whether that's you want to invest in the expansion of your service delivery or you want to train some more staff or you train your volunteers or you invest in capacity building, like you might be um, putting your surpluses towards building your fund, like a fundraising role, all of this goes towards achieving your end mission. So it is really important um, that we do switch our mindset around that. And I do think... And it, it perhaps it aligns a little bit with the earlier comments we were talking around small organisations. Small organisations mm. sometimes are nervous to have to have this sense of having some money because they have a belief that all the money should be be spent as you know as quickly as we can getting out into the community. And while the majority of the time that is the case, it is really um, important of us to be prudent in in being able to make a surplus um, on our financial books. And, again, when you're going for funding, funders are looking for that. They don't want to fund someone that's made a loss for the last three years because that kind of indicates, you know, you're on shaky grounds. Um, and conversely, if you've got large, you know, large amounts of surplus, they, they may question that as well. But, um, yeah, definitely... I'm busting the myth that charities shouldn't be making a profit because we want charities to be profitable, we want them to be uh, sustainable and we want them to continue to do good in the community and they can't do that 
if they're going backwards and making a loss every year. That just is so full of common sense for me, but I think one thing that we really struggle with within the sector is tackling that conception or a, a lot of misconceptions that really are very common in media um, and that is one of them. There's often a lot of sort of stories or almost expose-like stories, you know, in TV media in particular around organisations having extra money. The bushfires in Australia was a really good example of that and the Red Cross talking about how they were spending funds and um, we've really got a lot of work to do, I think, to change that um, misconception around the fact that profit is bad um, and that people aren't being helped if you're holding on to profit. I think that's something that really is a misconception that's out there. But what you've said is just really broken it down and it really makes sense. Donors certainly don't want to give to an organisation that is on its last legs either. Exactly, exactly. And that's the, and, you know, the best thing that you can do for your donors is to show them that you were using their donation prudently as well to support the community but also to keep your organisation afloat and to make sure it's going to be there in another 5, 10, 20 years. Definitely. So my final yeah, myth, um, <laughs> yeah, my final myth for today is a little bit of a different one, and it's to do with support and newsletters and how you communicate with your supporters. So it's mainly around your marketing, and I want to bust the uh, misconception that messages in your newsletter always need to have some sort of element of being from your CEO or some CEO message because this is something we see a lot working with small organisations and even the bigger ones as well are really, really cling to this idea too. Yeah. I think a lot has changed even just in the last year or two with COVID but a lot in the last few years in how we communicate and engage with supporters and donors via newsletters and marketing across social media, I really do see it as a bit of an outdated way to communicate with supporters, particularly in a newsletter. Now, I know, Bianca, we talked about this before we started this episode, and I'm not talking about donor newsletters here because there is there is always a place for a message to come from your CEO. Um, but this Myth is more around getting small organisations to think about how they communicate. So um, what I've seen in working with a lot of small organisations is this automatic thought that the beginning of the newsletter has to have a message from the CEO every time and you might communicate with your supporters quarterly, monthly, bi-monthly. It doesn't really matter what the frequency is, but it's about stepping back from what you're sending and really having a look at the message because the message is more important than the messenger a lot of the time. I will say there are situations where it's really important for messages to come from the CEO or the head of the organisation. COVID's a really good example of that. So COVID updates, lockdown updates are really good to come from a CEO. I think you need to think of it as in, yeah, like crisis or emergency messages. Um, Messages where there's this need for leadership is where it's really important. But I would really challenge small organisations to question whether their CEO needs to sign off on a message in every single bit of communication that they do because I can tell you the supporters don't need that. They're not interested in that. What they want to know is what is your organisation doing to help the community? Where's their money going? What are you doing in terms of progress? What news do you have to share with them? So Mm. I want people to change 
they're thinking and think about what is the importance in the message, not who is the messenger. Mm. And the other thing to consider is that if you start your newsletter, particularly digital newsletters where space is really important, it, it, it's not utilising the space the best way you can to have that message from a CEO up the top because we have all respect for CEOs. They do a fantastic job and they're often really good communicators, but I, I very rarely see a really short, sharp message from a CEO as well. And so what that does is really get people to switch off to the important messages of your organisation. And I know that will be really hard for some CEOs yeah. or chairs to hear so do your best to not take it personally because it certainly isn't personal but it's just about the nature of communications Mm. with your supporters and with your work that you're doing within the community it's the work and the message that's important not who's delivering it so as I said there are exceptions to those rules I think it's um interesting because sometimes what you see in those sections of the newsletter is it's really just a summary of what is to come in the newsletter. It's not even anything mm-hmm. different. So no, you're right, exactly. wasted real estate, I agree. Yeah. But I really like the way you framed that around, well, what messages should the CEO or the leader, you know, have or, or bring to the audience? And that is around those messages when there's a need for leadership. So I think mm. if organisations or those people listening to us and they're thinking about their comms, if they can actually you know, think about it in that frame, like ask themselves that question, is this communication in, you know, does it have a need for leadership, this particular piece, this particular message? And you're right, most of the time it's not. And it also, you know, not having a voice of the CEO there allows us to lift up the voices of others in our organisations, whether it's a volunteer, they might have something to say or a program team or even one of your beneficiaries to tell their story. So I think that's a great, um, that's a really great, really great what you've made and I and I agree from a fundraising perspective writing a fundraising appeal um, that's not what we're talking about here because they should come from someone within the organization and it's usually great to have it as a consistent you know message and, and a consistent person mm-hmm. that's, that's soliciting those requests if you're doing um, e-appeals or direct mail appeals Look, there's definitely a little bit of ego involved in it and it's about stepping back and thinking about what purpose does it serve and does it serve the organisation? Because the other thing it does if you're always starting communications or newsletters with a message from the CEO is water down the importance of the CEO delivering messages. Mm. You know, if your supporters come to see that every newsletter at the top there's this message from the CEO and it's a little bit boring, then that just becomes something that they'll skip over. And so when there's something really important to say, like a COVID update or Mm -hmm. a really um, important fundraising appeal, then people are not as engaged with Mm. that particular person. Mm. It's really important in terms of communication strategy to think about how carefully you use the head of your organisation or your CEO. I think sometimes, now that I think about it, I think sometimes people do it because, they see other charities do it and they think that that's what they should be doing rather than, like you said, rather than thinking strategically about what's the objective of that communication piece and what's the purpose. Now, I would say that's probably more relevant for smaller organisations that are more established. Um, I think it's, if any of you out there are listening to this and you're 
the one man band of your organization like you're the only staff member in your the founder the ceo and everything in between um then obviously it's okay for newsletters to come from you because your supporters will be well aware it's probably just you so i think it's okay for communications to come from you directly particularly if you're running a small organization where you're very connected with people so there are exceptions to this idea but i think this myth i'm talking about is more about taking a step back and thinking about how you use the head of your organization to deliver messages so i hope our four myths today have given everybody some food for thought and if anyone has any of their own myths they'd like challenged please let us know or if you have any other feedback for us you can contact us at members at smallnonprofits.com.au great to talk to you today bianca you too kirsty and thanks everyone for listening